Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Walter Olson, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, welcome also to those who are watching on C-SPAN 2 and on cato.org slash events, where you can watch <coughs> online. Uh, how is my reception? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, we are delighted today to bring together an all-star panel to talk about the um, fate of gay marriage uh, in the Supreme Court in American society. Um, a couple of our panelists are fresh from hearing the second day of Supreme Court oral arguments. Uh, they have been kind of dramatic. I saw yesterday's transcript and heard the audio, and I uh, realized that there were some uh, extremely left-wing and some extremely right-wing ideas on our current Supreme Court, uh, and that, that's just Justice Kennedy. Um, <laughs> and, and, and today uh, was equally interesting, or so I hear, uh, though I haven't seen the details yet. Uh, we will be starting out with a discussion of how things went this morning and how things went yesterday at the court, and then uh, move into a wider discussion of what this all means for American politics uh, and culture. We are being joined today by uh, three wonderfully qualified uh, panelists. Uh, at my far right uh, is Ilya Shapiro of the Cato Institute, uh, who is with our Center for Constitutional Studies and in particular directs our uh, amicus program, uh, which uh, submitted a wonderful amicus brief uh, to the court. Uh, next to me on the other side is uh, Ken Melman, uh, best known probably for being the chairman of the Republican National Committee and uh, running George W. Bush's re-election campaign, <coughs> more recently known uh, for being a uh, very outspoken and eloquent advocate of same-sex marriage. Uh, he is with KKR, the financial firm in New York. And at my far left, uh, only, <coughs> only in that sense, Evan, oh. is, um, <laughs> is our, I won't call you a t token Democrat if you don't call me a token, well, never mind. Um, the, uh, Evan Wolfson, um, so often considered Hey, the, I'm the token straight guy here, so. The, the father, <coughs> father of the gay marriage movement uh, who has been working on it for a very long time uh, as uh, 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 <coughs> can now see uh, his work uh, <coughs> farther advanced than almost anyone would have expected, except uh, perhaps himself. He is the founder and president of Freedom to Marry. Um, we will do it as a uh, general discussion rather than with prepared remarks. I will throw some questions out there. And I should also mention, uh, you've all got your cell phones on mute, right? I don't even have to ask about <coughs> that. But I will mention that Evan has to leave a little early so that he can go on Fox News and debate. Uh, so. Um, we will respect that, uh, that need, and uh, if you are saving up questions, and there'll be some time for questions afterward, um, and you have a question that you especially want to ask of Evan, wave more frantically than your neighbors are waving. Um, <clears throat> let me sit down with the first question then, which is the obvious one. Um, how did this morning's argument go? Uh, well, I was there. Sorry I'm late. Uh, I guess that's a pretty good excuse for this panel that I was uh, coming back from the court. Uh, the jurisdictional arguments made my head hurt. I mean, yesterday was uh, uh, pretty understandable, bad enough, but pretty understandable, at least for uh, someone with legal training. Today, we have these very interesting, uh, fascinating issues of whether the, what the U.S. government is doing there, first of all, because curiously, the Supreme Court took this case uh, at the behest of the U.S. government, which of course agrees with the courts below. So it's effectively appealing a decision it agrees with uh, and is enforcing DOMA uh, while not defending it uh, in court. So is that proper? 
Paul Clement uh, was there to argue uh, uh, representing the House of Representatives, the uh, awkwardly uh, named bipartisan legal advisory group, BLAG, uh, which takes three to two votes, you know, three Republicans, two Democrats, on uh, every action uh, that BLAG takes uh, in the courts. Uh, and so does the House of Representatives have standing uh, to defend the law, given that the U.S. government uh, is not. I mean, there was a lot of discussion. Uh, INS v. Chatta seems to be the thing that's most concerning everybody about it, so everyone go home and, and reread that. Uh, but assuming they get past the jurisdictional arguments, it seemed like uh, DOMA Section 3 is not long for this world. Uh, the, the four so-called liberal justices would probably strike it down on equal protection grounds. A lot of discussion about the uh, inappropriate motivation of Congress in passing the law by Justice Kagan and Sotomayor, for example. Justice Kennedy spent uh, all of his time musing both jurisdictionally and substantively on what he's going to do, but if I had to uh, place a bet, uh, and this prediction is, is worth what you're paying for it, uh, that he would vote to strike down Domo Section 3 on federalism grounds. So, in effect, we would have a 4-1-4 decision. Domo Section 3 is gone, but no controlling uh, opinion. Any more ideas? Evan? So, let, let me start by saying, in addition to thank you to the Cato Institute, that we all always say in front of every big argument, you can't judge from the argument, and you shouldn't really read the questions and the back and forth, which were fast and furious both days here, and particularly complex and contradictory. So uh, that's what we all say, and then everybody immediately starts to tell you what they think is going to happen. And I really want to underscore that on, from both days, the mix of questions and issues and constellations of justices and crankiness on the part of some justices, which you can attribute to either <coughs> sort of feeling compelled to do something they're not quite comfortable doing, or not wanting to do something but feeling like they should, and that's also a sort of a guess, uh, really makes it very hard to say on the basis of these two, two arguments exactly what's going to happen. And I think you really need to take every prediction you hear and read and see tweeted and retweeted very, very skeptically. The justices are going to go back and delve through a mountain of briefs in both cases, a huge amount of evidence and argument. They're going to, as you all know, be circulating opinions, and that's going to lead to challenges that some may have that they think they're going to try to write it in a limited way this way or in a direction that way and realize that it may just not write the way they're trying to write it, let alone how the five may or may not come together. So I think there's really an important reason for caution in all the predictions, including mine, that, that you're going to hear. Having said that, let me say there are two things we do know very, very clearly, and then I'll talk very quickly about the arguments. One thing we know is that while the justices are doing their homework and going through the process I just described, the best single way we can maximize winning the freedom to marry and even getting the justices encouraged to do the right thing as they deliberate now in, in, in the court is to do what we've been doing, which is to continue winning more states and to continue winning over more hearts and minds. There are as many as four states that are going to be considering that have already begun considering freedom to marry legislation and could pass those bills into law before the court hands down its rulings, likely at the end of June. So the single biggest thing we can do to maximize the chances of winning are to pass those marriage bills and to continue growing the extraordinary who's who of America 
that have stepped up over the last many weeks and months supporting the freedom to marry, including in just extraordinary uh, amicus briefs and friend of the court briefs in front of the court, but also in the public discourse. All of that is what creates the climate and the momentum that encourages and emboldens and helps justices to find the right constitutional and legal roadmap. The other thing we know is that clearly the freedom to marry has the momentum and has the winning strategy. The strategy that has brought us to this moment of hope is the strategy that will bring us the freedom to marry nationwide, whether in June or in the round of work leading to going back before the court as soon as possible. One of the questions and exchanges that came up in the court yesterday was to, to point out that the Supreme Court got interracial marriage wrong before it got it right. And it was actually only a few years before the best name case ever, Loving versus Virginia, in which the court struck down race restrictions on marriage, that the court got it wrong. So whatever the court does in June, we have the freedom to marry winning strategy if we keep doing the work. That said, I'll just very, very quickly say, I think yesterday all the commentators would agree was complex, choppy, lively, engaged, hard to exactly peg and predict, and the gestalt of, I think, the immediate reaction today was very much what, well, I'll say was sort of what Ilya said. I'm gonna disagree a little bit for whatever this prediction is worth. I actually think it was clear that the chances of the court striking down the Defensive Marriage Act are, are far greater than, than, than not striking it down, and I actually think equal protection as well as federalism concerns is very much in play. And what was particularly striking yesterday and today, and I'll stop end with this, is that no one in court offered a reason to justify the denial of the freedom to marry or the, free, or the Defense of Marriage Act. What the opponents were pushing was, don't go fast, don't do it now, take your time, let's have a pause button. Absent was any good argument for continuing this cruel and harsh discrimination against gay couples. Well, the, the big one thing that Clement kept talking about was uniformity. Uh, that was the, he never mentioned anything beyond that because, of course, the federal interest is going to be different than the state interest. Yesterday was all about child rearing and uh, you know, uh, social, moral development, uh, police powers of the states, etc. This is different. And so what is the federal government's interest? And so Clement kept pounding the uniformity, and there was obviously a lot of pushback on that. Yeah, but the reason I say it the way I say it is he, you're correct. He kept saying uniformity, was unable to tether it to, to any actual policy, let alone legal or constitutional specificity about gay people. Uh, Ken, did you have something? Otherwise, I'll jump in. Um, I just would make two points, and, and I won't reiterate what you've heard, but I think Evan made two points that I think are really interesting from my perspective. Uh, first is, I do think, it, it, Evan's point about, about why we are where we are today, um, I think is worth noting. Uh, what is, in my judgment, so galvanized the public uh, is our stories. Uh, the story of Edie Windsor is an unbelievably compelling and unfair story. The fact that someone who did what we all think is the right thing to do, which is found a partner, spent her life with the partner, and at the end of a long life of commitment and of love and of support, is faced with hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. And then you look at Chris and Sandy, and, and you look at, at the plaintiffs in, 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 our, in the uh, AFER case, in the Prop 8 case in the Perry case. And again, you've got folks who are trying to do the right thing and they're punished for it. 
And so I think those stories, those examples, these aren't concepts. These are real stories about real people make a gigantic difference. And I think that made a huge difference. Second, I think, <clears throat> is look at the panoply of amici in, this, in these cases. It's not just that there was a large number. It's the cross-section of society. It's military leaders. It's religious leaders. It's business leaders. It's Republicans and conservatives. It's leaders of excellent think tanks. <laughs> All making the case from their perspective and why it makes sense. Big change doesn't happen in a single direction. It doesn't happen from a linear perspective. It happens when suddenly, all across society, people uh, speak out from their perspective and explain why. That's point two that I thought was really interesting. And then point three, to Evan's point, what's interesting to me is often political debates come down to uh, a debate between what I would describe as substance and process. And this is not to denigrate very important substantive questions are being raised by opponents of, of of marriage equality, and they ought to be discussed, and they're important issues that we ought to take very seriously and we ought to respect and respond to and listen to. At that having been said, if you listen not only to the lawyers in court, but the advocates speaking publicly on television and other places, what's interesting to me is, whereas maybe five or eight or nine years ago, uh, a lot of the what I would describe as substantive arguments uh, were on one side. Today, they're overwhelmingly on behalf of marriage equality, whether it's about fairness, whether it's about what's better for kids, whether it's about freedom. <clears throat> and when one side says fairness, freedom, better for kids, and opponents say um, process, usually the former is a lot more compelling to both judges and to the public than the latter is. So those just slight additions to what have been excellent comments already. Uh, Evan, I'd like to challenge your interpretation of one of the things that was said yesterday. Uh, you mentioned the case that preceded Loving versus Virginia, uh, and uh, Justice Ruth Ginsburg kind of uh, pulled this out of the blue. Uh, it's a case called McLaughlin versus Florida. Everyone was running to their uh, uh, <laughs> uh, web browsers because uh, you know, even, I believe, uh, the, the lawyer making the argument at that point didn't recognize it. But when she brought up that case in 1964, three years before Loving versus Virginia, and on the less explosive and narrower issue of a ban on on interracial cohabitation, um, it seemed to me, and maybe I was getting the nuance wrong, that she was praising the court for having taken uh, off no more than it could chew with that, rather than saying that it had made a mistake by not reaching out to the more sweeping decisions. She was praising it, and she's written elsewhere about her feelings on uh, social change in public opinion. Certainly between 1964 and 1967, there was a huge movement in American public opinion which made Loving versus Virginia more acceptable in 67 than it would have been in 64. So was she right, if I'm interpreting her correctly? Well, you're, you're partly right. <clears throat> I'm sorry. The case that you're absolutely right about the case, the case that she was referencing was McLaughlin, and that dealt with, I would hardly call it that much less explosive, question of interracial cohabitation shacking up rather than marriage. I think they were a little bit of a piece, but she was making the point that you're, you're saying that the court in that case ruled on what was before it, which was cohabitation, rather than going further to address the not directly presented question of marriage. So you, you are correct about that. The case that I'm referring to is called Name versus Name, okay, and it's around the same period, right. but it's all of the same, it's all in the same piece. But y your, your point is correct. Now, in terms of your larger point, however, uh, what, what the important point here is that the question of the freedom to marry is squarely presented in the Perry case. The question of whether the court rules 
with regard to the freedom to marry nationwide or rules with regard to California or rules with regard to broader in ways of looking at the facts, that was very much kicked around in court yesterday, and we're going to see what the court chooses to do. I can leave it there. Well, and, and let me just say one other thing, which is that Justice Ginsburg has also pointed out that her comments some 30 years ago, I can't remember now, um, with regard to Roe v. Wade, have been a little bit taken out of context. Her, her point, again, was, the as she characterizes it now, is that it's not that the court should not rule on what's in front of it. It's that the court should not necessarily feel compelled to go beyond what's in front of it to try to settle broader things in terms of how cases are or aren't presented. Two other points that I think are relevant to the point you made. One, <clears throat> when Loving was, pat, was, was uh, affirmed by the court or when the Loving decision occurred, 64% of the American people were against uh, biracial marriage, 64%. When uh, the decision was made, when Roe versus Wade was made, 52% believed there ought to be some restriction when it comes to abortion. Uh, that number has, ba has basically not changed. Whereas if you look at the data when it comes to support for marriage equality today, it's in a very different place. Not only do you have a majority in support of it, uh, but in fact, in those states where marriage was enacted by courts, Massachusetts, for example, Connecticut, um, it's stopped being a political issue. In the last election for governor of Massachusetts, the Republican and the Democratic nominee both supported uh, the right to marry, the freedom to marry, and affirmatively supported it, bragged about supporting it. So the evidence is that, in fact, some issues the court getting into does kind of preclude further democratic discussion and make it harder to develop a consensus. On this issue, that has not been the case. We've had essentially 20 years of decisions and 10 years of very active decisions. And in those 10 years, regardless of whether the state is a state where it was legislatively enacted or judicially enacted, support has continued to increase. Well, and if I could just, I agree with Ken's point, and, uh, and to take it one step further, when the Supreme Court struck down race restrictions in Loving, I don't really think it's that accurate to think that between 1964 and 1967, there was a tremendous change. In fact, as Ken said, some polls showed 64%. The polls actually usually cite showed 70% of the public opposed interracial marriage. The Supreme but Court- I believe only, what was it, nine or 16 states prohibited it? Something like that? I'll come to the states in a second, but talking about public opinion, the Supreme Court struck down race restrictions in the face of 64 to 70% opposition by the public. I don't think there are that many people here today who think that the court should have taken a vote and, and upheld bans on interracial marriage. The whole reason we have a constitution in courts is that some things are not polled and some things are not put up to a vote and there are safeguards and in particular the freedom to marry like many other precious and important freedoms is a freedom that belongs to the individuals in love as Americans pursuing happiness and exercising liberty. That's why we have courts. Courts should not be making all policy decisions but there are certain decisions that are reserved to the individuals and protected by the courts and the constitutions. And as far as the state question, you're absolutely right. One way in which you look at how do you set the stage for the Supreme Court to do the right thing, it's an interplay between two critical masses. One is a critical mass of public support and momentum and so on, though we don't want the court just taking the pulse because then we wouldn't have rights, we'd have votes. And it's also the critical mass of states, what's happening in the states. And if you look at where we were in Loving, we're, we're way ahead now on the question of the freedom to marry here, 
in terms of public opinion than where we were at Loving, and we're not as far ahead as where we were at the time of Loving, as you point out, with regard to states. And freedom to marry strategy all along, the strategy that has brought us here and that will win, is to continue that interplay of those two critical masses and also have the right justices. I think you've brought out very well the tension between um, public opinion and, and, and the court. That is, you know, it, it almost certainly has to matter, and yet we also have to keep it from mattering as a matter of principle. Uh, <clears throat> the states, uh, as I understand it from hearing about this morning's oral argument, uh, uh, Justice Kennedy was very interested in the federalism issue as an argument against DOMA, and uh, this is something uh, we have been obsessed with almost at Cato because uh, you know, a number of our adjunct uh, legal scholars and uh, highly prized compatriots have signed a brief uh, arguing that DOMA flunks on federalism. Um, I believe that uh, Ilya and others who are uh, uh, directly with the legal project take a very different view, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask you about that in a minute. But uh, just to make clear what the stakes are on this, uh, if it, the brief were followed and the, uh, it were decided that the federal government had to butt out of domestic relations law in general uh, and that one consequence of that was that it had to take it as it found it as far as uh, giving benefits. Um, <clears throat> a number of other interesting things would happen, many of which conservatives and libertarians might like because uh, there would be a new powerful uh, constitutional argument for kicking the federal government out of various other areas that perhaps it shouldn't have gotten into. And indeed, there have been one or two panicky reactions already from uh, left-wing legal commentators who realize what a threat to a massive federal government it would be to have that argument accepted. Um, that it, there also might be a consequence, as, at least as I would predict, uh, in saying that a future federal government could not restrict the right of states to keep gay marriage illegal uh, and might perhaps uh, look with a jaundiced eye on the Respect for Marriage Act or enactments of that sort. Uh, am I right in guessing that? Uh, what, would you like to win on the federalist grounds if that's the only way to win? I'm, I guess I'm asking Evan specifically, but if everyone could, could react. Well, I mean, let's be clear. The, the federalism concerns that are there, I think, in this case, are also very deeply intertwined with the equal protection dynamics. So you can't always just treat each strand of the Constitution as separate, particularly when a law is this kind of invidious targeting law that is then inflicted by the federal government, in, the, in this case, by the Act of Congress in 1996. So. I, I don't, since you've already introduced me as to your far left, I, I'm not going to sign on to some broad mandate to sweep away federal power in the name of federalism. But I think in this particular case, it's clear, and I think this was clear from some of the questions, but where, the, where they're going to go with this I think is not clear, and I'm not ready to predict, unlike perhaps Ilya, that Justice Kennedy has settled on federalism versus equal protection. So I don't think I don't think it works that way, and I don't think we know that answer yet. Uh, but in this case, what happened was, as several justices point out in various ways, was that Congress took an unprecedented, radical step of intruding itself into a domain that everybody agrees, wherever you are on this spectrum, is traditionally, historically, and constitutionally, at least mostly left to the states, and did so in a sweeping, unprecedented way, targeting one group of people to impose a particular policy outcome. That's an entwinement of the two, and it makes it very easy, whether you look at it with federalism concerns or from the strict angle of equal protection, to say what Congress did here doesn't, doesn't cut it. As, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, hardly on the side of the spectrum that you're talking about, 
is that this wasn't just Congress saying, you know, for tax purposes, we're going to look at this, or for immigration purposes, we're going to look at that. This was Congress saying for all 1,138-plus federal protections, responsibilities, and incidents of the freedom to marry, we're going to have two classes of marriage. And as she put it, it was marriage and skim milk marriage. That's a problem, whether you look at it with a federalism lens or an equal protection lens. Which, of course, raises the issue of the federal government just being too broad and affecting so many areas, distinguishing by marriage or not. And more, even more fundamentally, the role of government in marriage at any level. You know, why should we have to get a license from the government, uh, a piece of paper, you know, recognition, legal recognition? Uh, you know, the only reason why we're even debating equal protection and all this is because government is involved. You know, so our first order as as liberal libertarians, as classical liberals, would be, you know, have a regime of, you know, common law marriage, hold yourself out as a couple, have, have whatever church, synagogue, uh, you know, uh, 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 what's the word about for, for, for Wiccans or coven, uh, you know, whoever wants to bless and, and, and give you a sacrament, that's fine. But once the government gets involved, there are these other issues. Uh, more specifically and technically on the federalism issue, uh, I have a debate with John Adler, uh, a friend of Cato on the Volokh Conspiracy, uh, on uh, Reason Magazine's website about the role of federalism in Prop 8, where I say, agreeing mostly with, with what uh, uh, Evan said, that, look, this isn't an issue of whether the federal government has overstepped it bound, its bounds, like, say, the Obamacare argument was. This is an issue of whether uh, the Prop 8 case yesterday, uh, a state... Uh, in having this law, this marriage law or this institution, uh, can lawfully uh, discriminate or treat uh, people differently based on sexual orientation. It's not, it's, it's, it's not a slam dunk case by no means. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that's what the issue is. The issue isn't whether federal courts are to be the ones who are making that decision or the executive. By definition, since the ratification of the 14th Amendment in 1868, uh, if you have a state violation of an individual right here on equal protection grounds, I buy that much more strongly than I do a, a substantive due process argument, then it's for the federal courts to uh, decide uh, that issue. If the states aren't violating anybody's laws, fine. If they are, as I've argued in, in my brief, as Cato has, uh, then, then it has to make that ruling. On the DOMA case, uh, that debate has also played out on the Vola conspiracy. Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz, who's a uh, an adjunct senior fellow here, has debated John Adler and Randy Barnett and others simply by saying, and this came out a little bit at argument today, that of course the federal government has the power to define the terms it uses in its statutes. Justice Alito said, well, what if they didn't use the word marriage? What if they used you know, domestic couples that are certified or something like that? Uh, well, again, it gets down to the basic issue. It's not about the word marriage that has some sort of magic about it. It's the act of uh, discrimination, of treating different people differently under the law. So that whole federalism inquiry, I think, ultimately has to collapse uh, to equal protection. Now, Justice Kennedy might not agree, and I'm not you know, 100% certain that he's going to vote on federalism grounds, but both Kennedy and Roberts seem to be very attracted to this federalism argument. I think they might split in how they uh, decide it, and, and I ultimately don't buy the federalism argument, but uh, I'm not sure. You know, I, you know, I like the equal protection argument, but for whether... On, on legal or prudential grounds that the court, or at least Kennedy, doesn't want to uh, undermine all state marriage laws by ruling on equal protection grounds in DOMA, uh, you know, we could have uh, this sort of uh, way station on the way to uh, an eventual political uh, resolution in, in most of the states and the nation as a whole. Um, we always wonder whether uh, amicus briefs are having an effect, and 
Uh, one of them that seems to have at least caught uh, Justice Kennedy's eye is the conservative filing uh, by Professors Leon Cass and Harvey Mansfield saying that uh, <coughs> uh, the lower court relied on social science, that the social science is, as Justice Alito put it, uh, newer than cell phones and the internet and is done by uh, <coughs> scholars with some of the usual failings of uh, academic social scientists. They have you know, points that they want to make. Their, uh, their, their research is sometimes not very rigorous. And uh, Justice Kennedy uh, was uh, swayed, it seemed, by this. If you had been there as Ted Olson or as another of the justices, what would you have said? Well, to me, th that was my biggest disappointment of the argument yesterday. I think it was the biggest missed opportunity in the argument because in this case, there is an extraordinary and one-sided record in part based on the important trial that occurred in which both sides had any opportunity they wanted to bring in any witnesses, cross-examine, call evidence. And at the end of that trial and with the findings that resulted from that trial, it was clear that the social science data, the evidence, the, the witness testimony in favor of how gay parents are fit and loving and doing well and their kids are doing well, and there is absolutely nothing to contradict that from any reputable source whatsoever. That was crystal clear at, through this trial, and it was amplified again by an extraordinary array of friend-of-the-court briefs in which every leading public health and child welfare authority in this country has weighed in on the side of the freedom to marry and loving and committed couples. So. It, it, it's important that the justices, including Justice Kennedy, to the extent they are wondering, be reminded and pointed to these briefs and this evidence and this record, including the trial in the Perry case itself, which very much echoed, by the way, the trial 14 years earlier in Hawaii, where again, the very same questions were first litigated and the same findings in favor of gay parents and kids being raised by gay parents and absence of evidence on the other side were made. So the good news here is that Contrary to the drama we all feel about it, argument is not the most important influence on how justices rule. The justices are going to go back. They're going to look at the record. They're going to look at the number the, of those uh, avatars on Facebook that have turned to the equality side. That makes That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to look at the friend of the court briefs. Their clerks are going to d digest this extraordinary reporting, and they're going to see that actually these are not uncharted waters. This is not a, an open question. It is not something that people need to worry about. Gay parents are doing great. Our kids are doing great, and it's absolutely clear that even if you didn't think that was true, the best way to protect kids is to provide their families the support and structure and stability and dignity that comes with marriage rather than to punish kids for having the wrong kind of parents by withholding the important protection of marriage. Um, any other reactions? Or <clears throat> let, let me ask another question about if, if you were there. Uh, Justice Roberts <clears throat> was... Uh, it, it seemed swayed by one of the other arguments that has been offered, which is that uh, <coughs> some of these doctrines were intended to protect politically powerless minorities who had no way of um, mustering majority support through the process. And he said, uh, uh, if there are such minorities, they're not in front of us today because look at all these senators who are changing their position. Look at the stampede virtually to endorse gay marriage. This is not a politically powerless minority. Uh, is this legally relevant? Uh, how would any of you have responded? Well... This uh, raises some problems and, and sticky wickets in our jurisprudence more broadly. Uh, ever since we started bifurcating our rights with uh, Caroline Products 
infamous footnote four, where some rights are more equal than others, the way that courts have, uh, uh, and the Supreme Court uh, in the lead, of course, uh, have uh, d distinguished which rights apply and which groups are protected is by applying different levels of scrutiny and applying different criteria to different so-called suspect classes. Um, I, I don't know the answer to the question of whether uh, 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 gays or people who support gay rights are a politically powerful or not politically powerful group for legal purposes. I think for, uh, uh, in the lay sense of the word, I, th I think they are. Uh, how it's interpreted legally, I mean, the, these tests change, and they all, uh, the, this, this scrutiny uh, rubric often just depends on uh, uh, what the, uh, the, the end objective of the justice who implies them uh, mean. And so if, you know, and this is part of the, raises the debate about whether we apply rational basis or heightened scrutiny. Uh, ultimately, these are, a lot of this is, is semantic games, I, I think. And so uh, we probably won't go into much of that. Uh, the, I, I don't uh, think, I certainly hope that the court doesn't go into that in its ultimate ruling. Well, and, and I would put it a little differently. The, I don't think what the court is doing properly in those analyses is talking about which groups are protected or who has more rights. I think what the court properly is doing is saying there are certain classifications that the government draws that are more suspicious than others. Some are very suspicious. When the government uses race as a criterion, that's suspect and requires a presumption of unconstitutionality and a deeper examination. The court has identified other such suspicious classifications, such as, for example, sex, religion, alienage, ethnicity, etc. And the, the, the argument here is that sexual orientation, likewise, should be viewed with suspicion. And there are, there are factors that the court has identified as factors courts should look to in determining whether there is a suspiciousness to a government classification. And those factors include things like a history of discrimination. And in this case, the degree of political powerlessness. Now, nobody thinks that that's an absolute. Obviously, we have an African-American president. We have many African-Americans in Congress. We have Latinos arising and emerging uh, political force, et cetera, et cetera. But does that mean that, that race is not a suspicious classification when the government uses for a criterion? Most of us would say, of course, race is suspicious. Women are more than half the public, but does it, so they are more than half the voters if they so choose. Does that mean, however, that classifications based on sex are not suspicious? We would say no. And likewise, as the head of freedom to marry, I want to see us have more power. I want to see us dismantling that uncontroverted history of discrimination and the fact that gay people have been targeted by ballot measures more than any other group in American history and endure to this day explicit anti-gay discrimination in 30 plus states and the absence of protection at the federal level. So yes, we're growing in terms of our ability to enter the political process and engage and persuade, but does that mean gay people are not still disadvantage in the political system and political process as the existence of the so-called Defensive Marriage Act and the denial of the precious freedom to marry indicate? Of course it doesn't. And that's why there should be a presumption of unconstitutionality that the court ought to apply. We can get back to the legal issues in the question period, but uh, I promised that half the program would be on uh, politics and culture and so forth. So let me switch to that. 
I think we have all followed the public opinion polls in this area, some of us more closely than others, and one of them that fascinated me uh, the other day uh, purported to show, and, and maybe I wasn't reading it right, that um, although there has been a tremendous public movement on this, um, uh, if you step back and uh, <clears throat> average together the polls, you find that it's actually a stepwise movement of about one and a half percentage points a year, which seems to go on whether the issue is in the news or not, before the Supreme Court or not, uh, whether you know, Ellen DeGeneres is on the front cover of Time or not. Um, is this correct? Uh, if it is correct, what are we all doing, uh, to, to, you know, talking on about this issue when <laughs> the public seems to be changing at the same pace whether the issue is on the front page or not? Uh, or is it not true? It does it in fact come in, in gulps and leaps. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at at least the data I've looked at, there was a very interesting analysis that Jan von Lohausen, who is a Republican pollster, he was President Bush's pollster, does polling for Senator McConnell and others, he did, and he looked at all the public polls <clears throat> from basically 1993 forward, which is when they really began measuring uh, public attitudes on marriage. And what he found is from 1993 till 2009, there was about a 1% increase a year, a lot of which could be attributed to uh, demographic change. And from 2010, 11, and 12, there was a 5% increase a year, which uh, he believes, and I think he's right, is attributed to all the stuff people are doing. But, but not the truth is, in my judgment, what's happening here in Washington is very important, and around the country is very important. But uh, the most important thing is I might call it the Will Portman effect. And that is the power of people to recognize that there's not only not a concept. So these cases highlight it's not a concept, right? They say it's real. Edie Windsor is being really punished. This is not about her somehow getting the, quote, approval of society. This is whether she has to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars and potentially lose her home or not. What uh, Chris and Sandy face and Paul and Jeff face in the AFER case isn't a concept. This is whether they ha can make medical decisions for their children. In only 20 states, if one of them is in the hospital, can the other make a decision about what their care ought to be. That's a real deal. And so it's not only that people have come to understand these are real issues and real injustices, they've come to understand they're happening to their neighbors, their children, their friends, their relatives. And so uh, what this conversation has done, I think, is a whole lot of more folks have come out and they've explained. Uh, and so no longer you're thinking about this in terms of uh, it used to be a concept about those people. Now it's a real thing about my people. And when you think about it that way, it has a huge changed impact, I think. And so I think that's also uh, made an, an, a difference. Look at uh, a couple recent data points in polling were interesting to me. The Washington Post uh, ABC News poll that came out this past week, 64% of evangelical millennials, millennial voters, uh, so essentially voters under 30, support the freedom to marry, 64%. 81% of voters overall under 30 support uh, the freedom to marry. 52% of Republicans between the ages of 18 and 49, if you include independent-leaning Republicans, support uh, the freedom to marry. Um, they asked also the question of, have you changed your opinion? 14% of voters had changed their opinion in the last decade. 12% uh, had changed to be in favor of marriage, 2% to be against marriage. So for every one voter that has changed to be against the right to marry, nine voters have changed to be in favor of the right to marry. Those are big changes that I think this conversation is uh, helping to inform. Yeah, and, and can I just say, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, just real quick on the, on the polling, the other thing to note is that whatever demographic you're looking at, whether it's evangelicals, whether it's blacks, whether it's Jews, whether it's everybody, 
the younger you go, the more support there is. So to a certain very real extent, uh, opposition is, is, is dying off. Uh, now, unfortunately, the one demographic, uh, and this is a bit of a glib comment, the one demographic that's uh, against is over 65s, and the average age of the Supreme Court is 67.9. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, the only thing, I, I completely agree with Ken's point, and I just want to underscore a piece of that as part of the larger whole, which is what also has happened over the last several years as part of this swelling, accelerating momentum and people changing their hearts and minds in greater numbers as more people are talking in broader numbers and broader swaths of the public, is that people like Ken Melman and Ted Olson, whose biggest contribution to this cause was not the Perry case, in my view, it was his speaking out as a, a pillar of the conservative establishment and giving permission to others with, that, that respect him to, to think anew and to open their hearts and minds. And we've seen more and more of that, thanks to Ken, thanks to Ted, thanks to others in, across the spectrum and on that right side of the spectrum as well as in the broader general public. And that has been part of this dynamic we've seen uh, accelerating over the last few months, few years. Let me ask Ken, um, for all of the different demographic groups that have crossed over from being negative to being positive, one that is very definitely, I mean, tell me if you disagree, but one is, that is still very definitely negative is Republican primary voters. So when a Republican elected official or would-be elected official talks to you about this, uh, how do you suggest they get from point A to point B as far as surviving a Republican primary? A couple thoughts. First of all, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that, that it depends on the primary, it depends on the jurisdiction we're talking about, so both the congressional district, the state. I mean, to me, uh, I think the questions are a couplefold. One is, where do the voters that you're speaking to stand on the issue? The second thing you look to is, how much do they care about it? So where is the energy? Uh, where is the ardor with respect to the issue? And what's changed also in the last several years is the energy and the ardor is on behalf of advocating for, not advocating against. So you can be against something and not care that much, and that issue then uh, is uh, an issue that a candidate or an office holder needs to think about, but it's less important than if the voters care a lot. Voters care a lot about this uh, being for it more than being against it. That's point number two. And point number three is how do the voters feel after you've made uh, conservative arguments on behalf of these issues? So one of the things I've tried to do in the last couple of years is do a whole lot of polling on this question. So 79% uh, of Republicans believe that a same-gender uh, couple ought to be able to visit their, 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 uh, their spouse in the hospital. 57% uh, believe that if one dies, the other shouldn't uh, lose their property. 51% believe federal health benefits ought to be available. Uh, more than... Uh, seven in ten Republicans believe in the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. The fact is the, quote, Republican voter is not where the Republican voter is perceived to be if you, in fact, look at the data. In the last year and a half, we have a group, it's not a group, it's just an effort called Project Right Side. If you go to our website, projectrightside.com, you can see some of the data. We've polled 16,000 Americans, 8,000 of which are center or center-right leaning, and we found again and again and again strong support for not only these rights associated with marriage, but also uh, when you express it in conservative arguments and associate it, as Evan noted, with conservative leaders, uh, the support is even higher. So when you explain to people uh, what Dick Cheney said, which is freedom means freedom for everyone, the level of Republican support is overwhelming. When you explain to people that a safe schools bill, like the one that Chris Christie and Governor LePage of Maine signed, uh, includes gay and lesbian children, overwhelming Republican support. So a lot of this really is 
the context in which you frame it and you describe it. The number of Republican elected officials in the last year who have voted, in the last two years, that have voted for marriage has doubled. There are 203 Republicans nationally and statewide that have voted for or come out for marriage in the past year and a half. Three lost because of it. There's not a single issue I can think of where doing the right thing and 1% loses, uh, that's a pretty amazing record. That certainly isn't true on almost any issue I can think of. And so, uh, to me, uh, when you look at all the data, it says that, in fact, the Republican electorate is maybe not where some people perceive it to be. Uh, I'd like to move to questions from the audience, if, if that's okay. Um, we're going to be taking questions from the audience now, a few ground rules, uh, remembering especially that we have an audience watching uh, remotely. Uh, when I call on you, please uh, wait to be... Uh, wait to be called on in the first place. After I do call on you, wait for the microphone. A helpful uh, person will bring you a microphone. Uh, don't begin asking the question until the microphone is safely in your hand. Uh, when you do, uh, please announce your uh, name and affiliation uh, so that our readers know a bit about you. Uh, yes, in the second row, um, uh, the one in, in the sweater. Yeah. Oh. <coughs> Hi, my name is Eric Lowe. I'm with the Fair Observer. My question is that, you know, like everybody talk about like gay marriage and everything, but I think that uh, another thing that haven't been, you know, as you talked about a little bit, a little bit about is the uh, equal protection about like uh, discrimination against gay people. Basically, in certain states, they can, people can still fire people if they are, are gay or they just don't like the kind of like lifestyle or something. People, uh, in, in terms of equal protection, I think that's uh, a very s serious thing to do, even if you talk about like marriage. Any reactions? Well, I don't like discrimination laws in general. I think private organizations should be able to hire and fire for uh, whatever reason or no reason that, that, that they want. So I'm not sure that the solution is to expand uh, the number of uh, uh, lawsuits that, that are going to be uh, uh, filed on all these various bases, again, from what private organizations do. But the, these issues here... Uh, that we've debated yesterday and today are about what government uh, does when it acts, and it has to uh, treat all uh, citizens equally as they come. Well, uh, can I? Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I actually d I disagree with that point. I do think laws that say that places of public accommodation, places that open to the public, not purely private, but groups that well, organizations, companies, businesses, et cetera, that welcome the public in, can properly be prevented from discriminating on classifications such as sexual orientation, race, et cetera. And there's a longstanding American tradition of upholding those laws. But, but I do agree with Elia that what we're also talking about here with the freedom to marry is even worse because it's the government that is the discriminator. It's the government that is denying marriage licenses. And in my view, all discrimination is bad, but it's most intolerable when it's directed by the government against against any group of Americans. And I just want to add one other thing, which is that my favorite moment, or at least one of them, from the argument yesterday was when Justice Sotomayor asked the opposing side, the anti-gay uh, side, apart from the context of marriage for a moment, can you think of any other context, any other, can you, in, any, in any other context, employment, other kinds of protections, housing, et cetera, is there any rational, sufficient, good reason for discriminating against lesbians and gay men. And even the opponent could not say. He said, I don't think so. He conceded there is no good reason for discriminating against gay people. That, I think, is extremely powerful and shows how far we've come, but now we need to turn it into law. 
That was very good lawyering on her part, and you don't stop being a lawyer just because you're a judge. Uh, <clears throat> it, it actually surprises me that, that the, this battle is taking place on the marriage hill rather than on, say, the adoption hill, and that, that there are more states that allow gay adoption than allow gay marriage, because if the, uh, if the prominent interest is uh, to have a union of a man and a woman to raise children, and the state's interest is regulating uh, uh, procreation, and only you know, in a heterosexual couple can you have accidental pregnancies, et cetera, et cetera, uh, th- then shouldn't the focus really be on regulating child law uh, and, and not on marriage? It's a curiosity to me. And it's especially curious because in Western Europe, they've often adopted the opposite set of policies, uh, legalizing gay marriage at an early stage, but making it uh, quite difficult for gays to become parents. Uh, I was asked the other day at a Cato event why this was. One reason may be that the pool of adoptable children is is very low in Europe and and much higher here. Another one is that Europe probably has the progressive tradition that children somehow belong to the state, which, thank heaven, we have avoided having in the United States of America. Um, Uh, further questions? Yes, the second row on, on my left. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Kami Bhatt, and I write for the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is that how can you isolate same-sex uh, marriage issue from uh, sense of morality that our Christian brother and sister think? Uh, when I talked with them, they said, oh, if you allow this, what is going to stop you to marry with your brother or with your sister? And the second thing is, how can you address their fear? I'm a Muslim, and uh, s- during September 11, I used to go to NCC, National Community Church, where John Ashcraft used to go. go. And after September 11, they made me think that every Muslim in this country has bum in its pocket. So s- they consider there are one million Muslims in this country, and these Christian brother and sister think everybody is kind of terrorist. And similarly, they think that gays are very, very powerful, they are very organized, they are very rich, and they are going to take over this country, and then they are going to have their own sense of morality push on this country, and country would go down. Any, any, any response? L- let me just, on the last point, look, I, I, any kind of a self-righteousness thing. I'm part of Kinky community. We have a place called Crucible. It's on yeah. New York so, Avenue and North Capitol Street. We, sure, we need, we need time to answer all the questions. Rules. So you, you, you've asked you a question. Let, let me so I'll just, On the second one, I think that, that what is at issue before the court is civil marriage. Um, and in fact, we in our brief, the brief that 135 uh, Republican and conservative uh, officials signed, we made very clear that we believe, and we believe it is correct policy, that the Establishment Clause does protect a church, a synagogue, a mosque, a organization from having to perform a, a, a ceremony they don't want to perform. The reality is that, that today uh, the faith community is divided on this question. There are some uh, religious organizations and some uh, faith organizations, some synagogues, some churches that believe that they ought to marry members of the same gender and others shouldn't. And to me, it's wrong for the government to second-guess their decision. They ought to make their decision, and the government ought to respect that decision. The issue here is civil marriage, and um, that to me, as uh, it's interesting, I've noticed in a number of polls a higher percentage of people who think that there is a constitutional right to marry than support marriage. Now, why is that? That seems counterintuitive to us as Washington people. It, doesn't see, it seems weird if you think about it. The Constitution seems higher, and here's why. There's actually a depth of, uh, of insight, I think, that, that, that you have to consider there. What they're saying is, I don't personally support it, but the law ought to treat people that pay the same taxes, that serve in the same military, that put their lives in the line in the same way, the same. 
And that's what we're talking about. It's civil marriage. So whatever organization anyone's part of, private organization, has a right and should have a right to do what it wants. And I, I agree with what Ken just said, and I'll answer one other thing you had in your question, which was this question that is always thrown out, the, the, the specter of polygamy and all these other kinds of horribles. And the, whenever people bring that up, it's almost always an indication that they don't have a good reason for why loving and committed gay couples should be excluded from marriage. So they try to change the subject and hope that you'll spend the rest of your airtime talking about polygamy or whatever. But the, the other really important point to understand about that is gay people are not saying, let's have no rules, let's just do anything, and anybody can do anything. What gay people are saying is, let us have what you have. Just as you have the freedom to marry the person who is precious to you, whom you're building a life with, so should we have that under the law. Churches, religions, uh, churches, synagogues, temples, mosques, as Ken said, are absolutely free under the First Amendment to do what they want to do. But they should not be dictating to the government who gets that marriage license and excluding gay people from this opportunity to take that commitment in law to match the commitment in life that they're making. And, and just to Evan's point, I mean, in some ways, if you think about it, this is actually a tremendous success for and tribute to the arguments that proponents of a social conservative worldview have made for the past several years. I mean, there was a debate in this country uh, in, the, in the 60s and in the 70s, is marriage a good thing? Uh, is it good for people to settle down and, and make a lifelong commitment to someone else? That was a real debate. Uh, what this is about is people saying that the proponents of that traditional way of thinking are right, and we shouldn't take a group of people and exclude them from that traditional approach. So I think uh, uh, you know, Andrew Cameron said that he supports the freedom to marry because not in spite of being a conservative. I think that is absolutely true. I said that as a conservative, and I think that is true from a social conservative perspective. Can I say something? Yeah. I, I think this, again, illustrates the, the danger and the problem with the government in, in, intruding its tentacles into more and more spheres of life. Uh, if, uh, you know, if, if, if health care weren't nationalized, then we wouldn't be talking about contraceptive mandates. Uh, if the government didn't have such a heavy hand in other regulations, you know, we wouldn't be talking about should Catholic charities have the right to do adoptions and, and, and uh, refrain from uh, uh, conducting them for uh, uh, facilitating them for for gay couples, I think they should. I'm I'm for all sorts of religious liberty. And and again, here the issue is, uh, uh, well, I don't want to repeat what 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 Ken and Evan said, but civil marriage, as recognized by the government, the best solution would be for the government to 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 get out. Uh, but as far as questions of morality go, I mean, living together, getting married, uh, that's kind of the, the marriage license is a different issue than if you disagree if the morality is uh, the, the act, I don't know, uh, gay sex. Well, that's, you know, that's Lawrence versus Texas. That's a whole different set of cases. Yeah. Um, quite a long time ago, uh, Western societies separated uh, uh, birth certificates from christenings, separated uh, death certificates from lost rights, uh, separated legal coming of age from uh, religious equivalents like bar mitzvah. And to me, this is uh, a recognition that marriage is, is separable and, and should be separated in the same way. Um, more questions. There was one over here. Um, yes, um, right by the wall. Hi there. My name is John Murdoch. I, uh, I'm an attorney, and I... I I volunteered on the 2004 uh, Bush campaign, and partly I did that because of my opposition to judicial activism. And it, I, I can—I I must say—I'm—I'm I'm baffled by your definition of uh, judicial activism now, or maybe I don't understand it. But this seems to be the epitome of that, 
where we're at least in the Prop 8 case, where you were overturning a a democratically uh, a democratic election based on the evolving standards of uh, vague terms such as equal protection. Uh, it's, it's a good question. It's one we thought a lot about in our brief, and, and a lot of us have thought a lot about over the years. And, uh, and what I would say to you is, is I also don't like when courts step in and substitute their views and their will for that of the people, either directly through a referendum or alternatively through a legislature. I do, though, think that as someone who believes not simply in uh, judicial restraint but in limited government broadly, it is the province of courts, and it is appropriate of, for courts to step in when a fundamental right is violated for an inappropriate reason. So a lot of people were very upset, for example, when the court threw out the city of Chicago and the city of Washington's uh, ban on people having and possessing a, a firearm. I thought it was the right decision. I was also pleased, which was not popular in many circles, when the court threw out a number of elements of the campaign reform laws. Uh, and I think that what was, what was right about those was they were saying, even though they had been democratically enacted, they violated a fundamental right. Marriage has been held to be a fundamental right 14 times since the 1880s. If you're a prisoner, according to the Supreme Court, as of 1987, your right to speech can be taken away, your right to vote can be taken away, but your right to select a spouse can't be taken away unless there's an incredibly good reason. And what a number of us concluded was that Proposition 8 doesn't meet that good reason. And therefore, while it is an extraordinary measure, it is appropriate for the court to step in. That's exactly right, and I actually was uh, an intern on the on the '04 campaign's policy staff. There's a bit of a reunion for us here, I guess. Uh, uh, judicial activism typically means that the speaker disagrees with the opinion that he's talking about. It's an empty vessel. Uh, filled with whatever the speaker wants to talk about. Um, I don't think courts should be activists and they shouldn't be pacifists. You know, I, I, I disagree with Chief Justice Roberts uh, turning the individual mandate into a tax and, and upholding it rather than doing his job and striking down a law that he thought would have been uh, constitutional. That's a bit of judicial pacifism or the Kelo case, right? Not enforcing property rights. So the debate shouldn't be about whether courts are restrained, upholding, striking down, uh, overturning the popular will of the people. It's whether they're interpreting the Constitution correctly, and people in good faith can disagree about that, and that's what the argument is about. So either California is violating individual rights in uh, having Prop 8, or it's not. But it's not, you know, is it the proper role of the courts to say so? As I said, Evan is going to have to leave in a, a yeah, moment. I think okay. I have to go. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I am very sorry to have to but leave early, but thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Yes, second row, you've had your hand up for quite a while in, in this. Uh, hi, my name is Craig Olson. I, um, I have a question for Mr. Shapiro. I'm a little bit baffled by your. Uh, Sorry, I'm a little bit baffled by your, um, you seem to be against uh, the government issuing marriage licenses. If, uh, do I read into that that you don't think that, uh, that the government has any role at all in uh, regulating, in any marriage, marriage regulations at all, for example, inheritance or uh, parent, parental uh, responsibilities of children? No, no license, no, no, no regulation, no responsibility? Well, no, of course there has to be family law. Uh, people uh, live, uh, you know, they're not uh, uh, some sort of uh, individualist uh, 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 communes. They form families. They, uh, there are issues with custody, with uh, uh, 
um, paternity, with uh, uh, all, all sorts of things that inheritance. I mean, there, there's, there are issues that arise. Uh, but people living together and producing children predated the arrival of civil marriage uh, in human history. Uh, and there are ways that the common law or even codified law in terms of inheritance, bankruptcy, uh, whatever else, um, uh, that, that can take, uh, that, that can, that, that ought to, ought to exist. And contract law, of course, because how most of these things really ought to be handled is you sign a contract with your, uh, whoever you want to marry, uh, spelling out what the rights are for 98% of the people. That would be a, a simple boilerplate contract, uh, for, for others. They could say, no, not this, and we're adding this or something like that. And that's fine. There's certainly room for the operation of law, uh, but that's different than saying that the sovereign has an interest uh, in regulating uh, who you can marry or, or who can marry. Uh, yes, uh, Roger Pilon. I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Uh, my question was really for Evan, but perhaps Ken can answer it. Uh, and it's in response to um, the first question that was asked about the broader implications of uh, this issue and discrimination more broadly. Um, Ilya, in response to that question, distinguished the private from the public. And one way this comes up uh, is in the effort by private parties who have scruples against gay marriage uh, about participating in them. We have the case in New Mexico right now of the photographer who declined to participate in a gay marriage and is being uh, prosecuted for it. It seems to me this is the kind of overreach uh, that could put something of a break on the momentum that we've got right now. It seems to me it's the kind of thing that we have to be careful about, not to extend it so far, that there may be people like this who, for whatever reason, may not want to. And yet, an overreach of discrimination law can give us something of a backlash. Ken, would you care to respond Sure. I mean, I think, I think that absolutely that's a very valid concern. And I think that if you think about it, the truth is that what we're debating, this whole question of civil marriage, doesn't affect that lawsuit as evidenced by the fact that that's a state where there's not access to civil marriage. The, the reality is that there are separate laws in states which, and these are worthy of important debate and discussion, that define uh, when you're allowed to say no to performing an event or at a ceremony, if you're in the case of a photographer. But essentially, anti-discrimination laws are entirely separate laws. And if you look at whether it's happened through judicial process, like in a Massachusetts or a Connecticut, or alternatively, if it's happened through the legislative process or through the referenda process, we've got all three right now, in every one of those cases, the effect of civil marriage does not in any way change whether that photographer uh, could be sued or could not be sued. Finally, I think whatever we do legally, there are always going to be people that bring, you know, we live in a litigious society, and people will always bring lawsuits if they're unhappy about something. And that absolutely, excessive litigiousness should out without question be discouraged. But I do think we ought to be thinking about the context in which it comes up. And in this case, the debate about civil marriage really doesn't affect that particular question uh, as evidenced by where it happened. I should add that I believe Cato is uh, participating in an amicus brief in that New Mexico case on behalf of the photographer who does it, not It was want. argued two weeks ago. We're waiting for an opinion. Yeah. And uh, I've, for, for those who are interested in this area, I've uh, written at some length about how uh, nearly all the horror stories that have come up, if you believe in freedom of association, have come up in states that did not have uh, same-sex marriage laws. Uh, it, the problem, as we libertarians know well, is with the overweening tendencies of discrimination law. Um, Yes, uh, fourth row. 
Two brief questions. The first is, um, in certain states, we have common law marriage. Does the state have the right to declare two people, whether straight or gay, married who have not never chosen to be married? And my second question is, with the rise of states that have civil unions, is there a constitutional right by a state to create a condition that is not marriage um, for any reason? Or is this simply by creating civil unions a in itself discriminatory? Um, well, uh, some states do have recognized common law marriage. That is, if you live together long enough, uh, uh, and certain other criteria, have you produced children, do you hold yourself out as a as if you were a married couple, these sorts of things, then you can be treated as common law married. I don't think I'd, I'd want that to happen if there's no uh, consent uh, uh, to, to wanting to be treated as married. But again, this is another complication from having a civil marriage regime and then having some approximation, pre-political, you know, what, which is what common law marriage is, uh, uh, institution in, in the midst uh, uh, as well. And I think a lot of these issues can really be taken uh, care of by... Uh, common law. This came up today. You know, uh, I think Chief Justice Roberts asked, well, you know, does the federal law, how do you treat states that have common law marriage, but some of them might allow common law gay marriage, others don't? It's, it's, it really complicates the sorts of uh, jurisdictional and, and federalism issues that, that, that abound. As far as the civil union is concerned, um, that's an issue in the Prop 8 case that uh, you know, there, there could be. I, I doubt the court will rule this way, given how hostile all the justices seem to be to uh, Solicitor General Verrilli's kind of half-loaf solution. That is, uh, part of why Prop 8 has to go down is because, well, California has civil unions uh, that don't differ in any way other than the name from marriages. Uh, there are, I think, eight or nine states that are, that are in that boat. Uh, well, if you have a, a, a rule saying that uh, if, if all civil unions, if, if you grant all the rights except the, the name, well, then that's purely animus, there's no rational basis, then that disincentivizes other states from giving some rights, but not, who don't want to go the whole hog and, and give marriage. Um, so, you know, I think, I, again, uh, it should be contract-based and common law-based, um, and I, I don't think that uh, this, you know, civil union means that you have to have marriage. Uh, is ultimately a, a tenable position for constitutional law. I, I think the question also um, <clears throat> uh, brings in something that is um, not enough uh, appreciated about the history of marriage law, which is that uh, far from being some timeless thing handed down to us by our ancestors, it has been in continual flux. Uh, common law marriage definitions have changed. Palimony is a quasi-marital law concept that has turned up only in our own lifetime and uh, in general, it's never been static. Uh, there is nothing to conserve or go back to uh, in, in that sense. Um, there was a question in the front here. Yes. Hi, um, Janice Walker and Adair. Um, getting married is always exciting and fun. And um, we all... Is it good? I'm doing it in June. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but then... And, and I understand <laughs> the benefits you're looking for with um, the insurance and, you know, the health care and being able to visit another partner in the hospital and that type of stuff. But then when it doesn't work out, maybe the next day you wake up, are you guys going to have to go through the same horror divorce situation that we are? Are the laws going to work just as equally with that situation? Uh, well, there was a cover story in New York Magazine on exactly that, which is welcome to gay divorce and uh, equality of unhappiness. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot, of, 
a lot of people favored gay marriage without having any tremendous goodwill for gays for that very reason. Um, they figured, <laughs> that, what, what, why let us have all the misery? Um, in, in all seriousness, uh, if one takes the sweet, one must take the bitter. And logically, one cannot ask for commitment and then is somehow escape through some sort of parachute the consequences of failed commitment. And uh, so, yes, uh, this has already happened. Uh, uh, choice of law nerds will love the fantastic complications that go on when a couple has changed states between the marriage and, uh, you know, and finds that the new state will not recognize them as being even married enough to divorce. Um, uh, thus leaving them perhaps... Uh, Is, isn't there a court in Texas that recognizes gay divorce right. but not well, marriage? Courts, I believe... Have, Yes, I, I believe courts in non-gay marriage states have come out in both ways, and it would make a wonderful discussion which is more punitive toward gays, uh, forcing them to stay with each other when they don't love each other, or uh, creating a separate divorce category, because after all, uh, you deserve that right. <laughs> uh, yes, more questions. Um, the gentleman in the fourth row. Yes, you. Richard, Thank you. Hi. Yeah. Rick Rosendahl. Um, uh, this is a question that relates back to an earlier question. I think, at least to my ear, the most heated moment in yesterday's arguments on Perry was when Justice Scalia asked Ted Olson, when did the exclusion of, of homosexual couples from marriage become unconstitutional? Um, now, Dale Carpenter thought that Olson stumbled a bit on that. I thought he was A... Uh, Olson was extremely combative, unusually so, and second, that he did talk about our evolving understanding uh, how our view of the Constitution's applicability changes and grows when we, for example, increase our understanding of sexual orientation. But in any case, does any of you think that Scalia landed a real blow there, or did he just was he just being cranky and demonstrated that perhaps he's not so much an uh, originalist as a dominionist? What, what, do you, what was your take on that? Well, I blogged about this. It's it's up on Cato's website now. Um, the I think Scalia was getting at is this one of these sorts of evolving standards of of, of decency that the living Constitution? You know, when when was this right? Or do you really mean that the uh, that the founders of this country or even the ratifiers of the Fourteenth Amendment had in mind gay marriage, which isn't the right way to form uh, frame the question? And I think. Uh, Ted Olson didn't answer it very well. He talked about, well, it's when we became, began to accept uh, 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 gays into our culture and these under, new understandings of equality. I don't, I don't think that's right. That sort of plays into kind of the, the opposite uh, 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 trap that Scalia was laying. I think the answer is 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified. Not because I have proof or think that the ratifiers of that amendment uh, had in mind gay marriage or any aspect of gay rights. But you look at, if you're an originalist, you have to do originalism at the right time. And what we're arguing is uh, rights to equality under the law um, that, that are protected by the 14th Amendment, because we're talking about state violations in the Prop 8 case. And what does the meaning of equal protection and equality of the law mean? Uh, uh, you, you look at that, and I think that either... Uh, there's a right to gay marriage once the government, again, gets in that business in 1868 with the 14th Amendment, or there still isn't that right. Those are the only two uh, possible answers. And I, I link to some other discussion uh, uh, of this. Um, Josh Blackman has been blogging about it as well, and uh, Elizabeth Wydra, at our, my co-counsel on our brief. Look, I think that I, think, uh, I thought that you make an interesting point. I thought Ted's point was a good answer. Look, here's what matters. 
whether it happened in 1868 or it happened when we came to understand that sexual orientation was not something people choose, today it is unconstitutional. And to me, that's the, that's the, important, the important answer there. The fact is there is a fundamental right that is being taken away from individuals based on an arbitrary characteristic, which is to say by arbitrary, I mean one they did not choose, and they're denied access to it, and there's not a good public policy rationale for it. When and those four things are present, it seems to me the court needs to look very carefully and argue whether the Constitution is involved, and I believe it is. Whether that happened in, the 18, in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was, was passed, or more recently when we came to understand this fact that it was present then too, but we don't know, is less important than today. In fact, we know it's a violation. I think Ted's and, and therefore Ken's answer are kind of more of a, 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 a proper, a correct layman's response. From a, from a legal term, I just want to hammer this point home by using another analogy. Uh, for example, segregation, right? Uh, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 said the separate but equal is unconstitutional. Does that mean that 1954 is when segregation became unconstitutional? Or was Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896 incorrectly decided and uh, equal protection of the laws uh, extended in that way against the separation of the races in uh, 1868? That's the type of analogy that I'm trying to draw. Every time uh, a court, Lawrence v. Texas as well, right, overruled Bowers v. Hardwick, uh, it didn't just mean that uh, all those years of anti-sodomy laws were constitutional. All of a sudden there was a switch uh, and they became not. Uh, I think when a court interprets a particular provision of the Constitution, that uh, effect, maybe it's a metaphysical, how many angels dance on the head of a pinpoint to a certain extent, but I think that is they're, they're right or wrong, they're interpreting what that provision uh, actually uh, meant when it was ratified. We have run out of time, so that's going to have to be the last question. Please join me in thanking our wonderful panel of Evan Wilson, Ken Melman, and Neil Shapiro. Thank you.